Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. morning. After I read, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you would respond by saying thanks be to God. Our reading is from Matthew chapter 9 and 10, starting in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Blair. Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all. May the Lord bless you. I'm uh, privileged to be able to share the word of Christ with you guys. It is... um, One of the greatest honors that somebody could have is to share God's Word. So, did you notice the big change here? And I don't mean my leather jacket, I mean like, did you notice the big change that we see in this passage, right? Which, by the way, I I said the leather jacket, now i got to comment on it. Uh, Paul, he's wearing the same exact shirt I'm wearing, and so I felt a little insecure, so I was like, i got to wear this and hide that, but... But now I'm exposing to you also, like, what's the point of it? Like, I just take it off, right? But anyway, I probably will. It's a little hot. But anyways, so the big change in this passage. Um, did you notice it? There's a big shift here in the narrative. 
uh, of Matthew. In the previous passages in the series, we've seen Christ's authority and his power on display time and time again. Uh, but now we have something different in the narrative. Christ is actually granting his power and his authority to others. So Matthew 10, it's so very different than anything that we've seen so far. It's, it's actually often called the missionary discourse. Whereas the last verses in chapter 9 are about the Lord of Harvest and about his mission, what Jesus says in chapter 10 is all about the people that the king is sending and how he is sending them. So today we're going to see the heartbeat of Christ for missions. And we're going to see the means by which he accomplishes his mission, the authority that he supplies for the mission, and the instructions that he gives for how to go about the mission. So let me pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the truths that we get to know about Jesus, that he is the Lord of this harvest, that he looks out and he sees the people of this earth, and he sees them with compassion, and his heart is to see them reached. His heart is to see them worship him, to lovingly be subject to him. Thank you, Father, that he is not just having that heart, but that he is sending his people. He sent his apostles here to the lost tribes of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel, and he's sending missionaries still today to reach people for himself, to bring people into his kingdom. Lord, would you pierce our hearts through this word today? Would you pierce our hearts and let us have the same heart of Christ to see the people and to crave their salvation? And would you, out of this very crowd, would you send people, send more laborers, send more laborers for the harvest? And God, we give us the grace to support them, to send them. But Lord, you must send them. Send them forth. And I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in this first paragraph in chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, we get insights into the king's mission. So first, we see an answer to this question, what motivates this mission? What motivates the mission of God? And we might rightly answer in a few ways, right? We, we, if somebody was to ask us that, we might rightly answer, for the glory of God or for the glory of Christ. But he's answering this question in a very specific way. So in verse 36, we see this in Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Christ was essentially the foremost apostle. He was going out to all the cities, all the towns to reach them with this gospel, and what he saw broke his heart. You see, that the eyes of Christ, they look out on the people, and his heart cannot help but be moved. So 
my question, New King, what does he see? What does he see out there in these people? He sees something beyond just crowds and just people. He sees their great spiritual need, and he feels it. It goes right to his heart, what he sees in them. He sees sheep. That's their true spiritual nature. It doesn't matter how powerful these people think they are or where they think they're at. He sees sheep, and he sees untended flocks who are harassed and helpless. They do not have people as their shepherds. There are no priests or prophets or teachers or religious leaders who truly care for these people, care for their spiritual needs, to feed them, to nurture them, to defend them. The ones who ought to be their shepherds are, in actuality, feeding on the sheep. That was their role, to shepherd the people, but what does he see? He doesn't see people being shepherded. There is no shepherd in Israel. Listen to the cry of Christ's heart in the prophecy of Ezekiel. In chapter 34, verses 2 through 6. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. This is your one duty as a shepherd, to feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They, were, they wandered over all the mountains. I'm crying like my brother did com- communion last week. I made fun of him for that. And I was going to make fun of me for this. Dang it. All right. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. That's the heart of Christ. That's what he sees in the people. Those who should have been the spiritual shepherds of Israel were, in fact, the very ones who harassed the people. They were hirelings. They were not true shepherds. They did not know the sheep by name. And the people were at the mercy of every wolf. Jesus sees with his eyes the true state of the people, and his heart bleeds for them. But he also sees something else. Do you notice that? He says this in verse 37. After seeing this with compassion, their state, he says this, the harvest is plentiful. You know, he sees an opportunity. There is something vile and sorrowful in the state of the people, something wretched, and yet there is something to be gleaned, people to be gathered, and gathered for who else but for himself, for the good shepherd. 
That's the shepherd they truly long for. As the prophet Ezekiel said in chapter 34, 22, I will rescue my flock. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I'm the Lord, I have spoken. So Jesus, he sees beyond their brokenness, and he sees the potential for fruit. He sees both their great spiritual need, and he sees an opportunity, and there is the mission. That is the mission, both the need and the opportunity. But how will he accomplish his heart's desire? How will he accomplish this mission? Does anybody know? Can anybody tell me how he's going to accomplish this? Through us. That's right. He says the harvest is plentiful, but here's the problem. The laborers are few, which means that therein is the solution is the laborers, but the problem is that they're few. You see, he requires his work to be done through his workers. The work will not happen apart from people being sent to do the work. As Paul says in Romans 11, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. And how will they believe, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So you see, the king, he requires laborers. He has decreed that it's through laborers he's going to do this. You know, I'm a Calvinist. I believe in the sovereignty of God. He's going to save whoever he chooses, okay? But he does, he, how does he do it? He doesn't just say, oh, I willed it, and it's done. No, he wills it and does it through his laborers. It will not happen apart from us going and preaching, He requires proclaimers. That's what the word preacher means, a proclaimer of Christ's message and of Christ's kingdom. The king requires laborers, and the Lord of harvest must send them. But what moves the Lord to send his laborers? It's, it's, you know, it kind of, all these questions are actually, it's different than what you would expect. What moves him to send them? Is anybody, can anybody tell me what moves him to send his laborers? Prayers. Prayers. Somebody was reading the passage. <laughs> so, it's always right there, fellow, fellows and lassies. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, anyways, uh, so yeah, clearly it, his compassion motivated him. But there was something else that that actually leads him to sending them. Verse 38, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in his harvest. So he is moved 
by our prayers, not just by our prayers, but by our earnest prayers. As we gain Christ's vision of the world, as we see what he sees and feels what he feels, our hearts will also be filled with that same heart that he has, that same compassion. And that heart will move us to pray in earnest that he will send people to them, that he would send shepherds, that he would send missionaries. But we got, we got to get that heart of Christ to be able to pray earnestly, right? Are our prayers really earnest in this matter? Do we really obey the command of the Lord to pray earnestly that he will send laborers into his harvest? Why do, not pray, we do, why do we not pray this? It's because we lack the heart. Our hearts are cold and our eyes are shut and we are ignorant to the true state of people. But if we could see them, their lost state, then we also would pray with the same earnestness that Jesus prays. So we will pray in earnest and the laborers will be sent. He will hear our prayers and he will do it. He will send out a commission. So this is what motivates the mission of the king, his eyes, what he sees, and his heart, what he feels. And this is what accomplishes his mission, his laborers. And this is what moves him to send them our prayers. But do you believe that that the world is as broken as he sees? Do you see what he sees in Burlington, in Vermont, in the United States, across the world? And do you feel what he feels when he looks? And do you believe this world won't truly be reached unless we are sent, unless we go? And do you believe your prayers can prompt him to really send workers? So you're called to believe this and act upon it. Whether you believe it or not, this is the truth. So believe it and act upon it. And may we do it by God's grace. So this is the king's mission. But if that is his mission, let me ask you a question, church. What does he then do? What does he do? Does anybody know what he does? If this is his mission, what's he do next? Anybody want to yell it out? He sends his disciples. The bachelors are on fire today. So, come on, everybody, keep up with the bachelors, okay? That's why that guy's going to be a deacon later, right? We only got an elder and a deacon respond, and his wife responding to these questions. Come on, people. I want to hear some other people. Um, <clears throat> so, yes, he sends them. And before he sends them, though, what does he do? He first invests his apostles with his authority and power. And then he instructs them in their way. So consider this. Who are these guys he's sending, right? Obviously, we have their names. Uh, but what I'm asking is, what even is an apostle? And what's the significance of an apostle in God's grand plan? So we know that in times past, the Lord God had raised up different individuals for his purposes, right? We think of Moses, David, Ezekiel, Elijah, prophets and kings, judges. 
all of them equipped with authority and power from God, instructed in how to go about their mission, sent to the people of Israel to restore them with a message, and sometimes to different nations, but that was very rare. And so at this time, we see this similarity that the apostles were being sent solely to the people of Israel. Verses 5 through 6 say that, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So you see, their initial mission in this passage was restricted to Israel because the, pe- the people of Israel essentially had first dibs on the kingdom. To them rightfully belong the promises and the covenants, according to Paul in Romans 9 verse 4. But we know what the end of this would be, right? That they would reject this offer of the kingdom. And this was done in order to fulfill the scripture, God knew from beforehand. This was done so that Jesus would be more than a king of the Jews, but would be a king of the nations, of every people, group, and tribe. Isaiah 49, verse 6 says this. This is God speaking to his son. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He's a king for the nations. And thus, very soon, this apostolic office, the apostles, this office would prove very different than anything that we have seen before. Not simply focused on the tribes and clans of Israel, but focused on the peoples of the earth. As God promised to Abraham, through you I will bless all the families of the earth. All the families. That word is actually related to clans. We see throughout the Old Testament this word nations, which in the Greek Septuagint, if you don't know this, that word nations is actually ethne, which is where we get our word ethnos, or ethnicity, right? So he's talking about ethnic groups. Not simply governances, but he wants to bring all ethnic peoples to himself to worship him. And under that are all the tribes of the earth, and within the tribes are all the clans, or the same word as families, of the earth. And that was what what God had promised to Abraham, through you I will bless not all the nations, not just all the tribes, but all the families of the earth. He wants to reach every family, every clan of the earth, not just every nation, every geographic nation, not every people group, but even down to every family. This is the mission of our God. And he achieves it initially through the apostles. Jesus was expanding his domain through them to include all the nations. This is what makes the apostles different. So you see this even in the word apostle. Does anybody know what the word apostle means? Sent one. Again, elder and deacon. Sent one. It means sent one. So that's literally what it means, the Greek word apostolos. It indicates a messenger, an envoy, or a delegate. The meaning is, this meaning of sent one is eventually what produced the word in the 1500s, missionary. Because missionary 
comes from the Latin word missionem, which means sent one. So the authority and power of the early apostles, it does distinguish them from missionaries in some way, the, the level and the degree of their authority and power. But like an apostle, a missionary is sent to proclaim Christ's kingdom to all the peoples of the earth, to bring them all into subjection to Christ. So this is the great new work of Jesus, delegating authority to people to, his ex- to expand his dominion over the nations. Though we do not see that happening yet in this chapter, we will at the very end of Matthew's gospel and the Great Commission. This is sometimes called the Little Commission. Matthew 28 is the Great Commission where he sends us to the ends of the earth. So that's how the apostolic office fits in God's grand plan. But what powers are they invested with? Does anybody know what powers they're invested with? Just, a, just one. You could, there's a bunch of them, but anybody want to say one? Healing. Healing. Very good. Got some people finally awake, I guess. So, uh, yeah, the, now healing and power over demons, and much more. What, what you're seeing, when you look back at the context of right before, this, these are all the same powers that Christ himself has demonstrated. So what authority and power is he giving to them? The very same authority and power that he has. He's granting them his power and authority. Like a high official investing a lower official with all of his powers, that is what he is doing for the apostles. Verse 1 says this, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So think of the significance just of that first thing that he's talking about giving them authority over. Spiritual beings, unclean spirits. Spiritual beings are of a higher order. As Philippians 2 shows us, To be made human is to be made lower than the angels. But Jesus grants them power over the spiritual authorities, over the rulers of darkness, over every dark lord of the earth. It appears Jesus gave similar authority and power, not just to the apostles, but to 72 other missionaries in Luke chapter 10. Did you know that? Whoa. Apostles don't look that special anymore, I guess. I don't know. But... Returning from their missionary journey, the scripture says this in Luke 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. So you see, Jesus, seeing them exercise their authority over demons, he likens it to Lucifer's fall from heaven, likening the exercise of their power over demons to his great show of power over Satan, throwing him out of heaven. So when he says he gave them power and authority over to tread on serpents and scorpions, he's not talking literally. Do you realize that? If he was, I think there'd be quite a few disciples saying, well, could you give us power to tread on lions and tigers and bears, right? My wife said you should add oh my at this point. (laughs) 
But no, serpents and scorpions are symbols of the demonic, and as they have been since that great serpent deceived Eve in the garden. So the authority Jesus grants over the demonic is absolute, over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. But he tells them this in verse 20 of Luke 10, kind of humbling them a little bit. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Isn't that interesting what he points their joy to, what he points their hearts to? Not in the subjection of demons, which is pretty awesome. I feel like that's hard to not be a little bit overjoyed about, but the power of Christ to bring them into heaven. But do you see the significance of this church, right? Spiritual dominion has been granted to the church by Christ over all her spiritual enemies. It reminds me of how Adam and Eve were given spiritual dominion over the earth, right? But here, he's giving them a greater spiritual dominion over all our enemies, over all our spiritual enemies. As Jesus later said to the apostle Peter in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Do you get that imagery of a gate? The gates will not prevail. We're on the offensive. We're taking the siege engines to war against the strongholds of Satan. We're called to press the attack. The enemy has been given into our hands, right? But do we now see the church doing this? Do we now see the church conquering Well, if we're honest, we actually see the church acting a little bit more like Israel, cowering before their task of conquering the land and the peoples that God had given into their hands. It's like when the spies returned from spying out the land. Two spies said, the Lord has given them into our hands. But ten spies said, we are like grasshoppers before them. We can't do this. They would not go into the land and conquer it. Though it was their birthright, though it was their promise by God, they would not go into the land because they were afraid of the people who were there, who were very tall, giants. But we do not have to fear giants or demons or lords of darkness, for Christ says their gates will not stand against us. I mean, there should be a little bit of excitement there, right? Come on! So that's, that's what we... I want to hear more of that, all right? So listen to this. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses day and night before God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Revelation 12, 10 through 11. There is this promise also to the one who conquers. The one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
Revelation 3, 21. Church, we're called to conquer. Authority has been given to the church over every dark lord of the earth. Why are we afraid to have a conversation with someone about the gospel? The strongholds of Satan are given to us. Why are we scared to say something about the immoralities around us? Why are we afraid to speak to our social situations? That fear is pretty uh, nonsensical when you get down to it compared to the authority and power Christ has given us. So may the Lord grant us courage and measure to the authority that he has given us. But besides authority over demons, they had every other spiritual power of, the Lord, of their Lord. And he told them to exercise their powers as they went on their mission. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And besides this exercise of power, they had a message of power. That was their greatest power, the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. The gospel of the kingdom is at hand. Repent. But listen to the instructions Jesus now gives them on how they are to go. He says in verse 8, at the end of it, You received without paying. Give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. So two principles Jesus gives them on the economy of the missionary. The first is give freely. Give freely. In their missionary work, they are to distribute grace render spiritual services, and practice their spiritual power without expecting payment. The grace and power and work of Christ are to be free things to be enjoyed by those who accept the gift. So this first principle, maybe you don't realize it, it really goes against a lot of ministries around the world and in America. Ministries who promise the exercise of spiritual power, healing, demonic deliverance, prosperity, wealth, all that is required to open these gates of blessings is 10 easy payments of 1099, right? And you might even get a, a little oil from Jerusalem thrown in. It's like indulgences all over again. That is not the way of Christ or the way of his sent ones, making mercenaries out of missionaries, that is the way of a false shepherd who, instead of feeding the sheep, would rather feed on the sheep. That's the difference between a minister of God and a minister of Satan. One is concerned about feeding Christ's sheep, the other about feeding himself. The second principle that Jesus is showing us is this. The laborer deserves his food. This principle, it provides a nice tension to the first it implies that God will certainly provide, yes, but more than that, that God will provide through people. Paul calls this expectation a commandment of the Lord and shows the Old Testament precedence 
in the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. And he says all this in 1 Corinthians 9, 13-14. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul, he actually calls this the basic right of a minister. And he uses another law to show this in verses 9 through 11. It is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? You see this tension that Paul's giving us? It's, not a, it's, it's definitely a balance that you don't see too well happen in American churches. And Paul, he uses this same exact reasoning to argue for the wages of elders and of pastors in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. Kind of sounds like I'm hinting at something at this point, doesn't it? Uh, don't worry, I'm not really. A little bit. <laughs> I'll leave it mysterious like, like that. Though some ministers take advantage of the people, some people take advantage of the ministers. They don't expect to give their ministers funds, and the ministers don't ask for it. Now, in some cases, this is an injustice on the part of the congregation or ignorance on the part of the pastor. And yet, it is also true that some ministers forego their right to wages if only to bring the free gift and grace of God to as many as possible. This is an important point. This is what the Apostle Paul did when he was ministering to the Corinthians. As he says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Then in verses 15 and 18, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel." So you see, while these two principles are true, the highest principle Paul shows us is to give utterly and freely of one's self. And so a minister can endure that injustice of not being given wages if only to reach more for the sake of Christ. So there's an obvious application to this. It's to give to God's ministers and missionaries. But I want to go further than that. I wonder how many of us are not going 
How many of us are not going, are stiff-arming God's call to be sent because we do not think that there will be provision? What Jesus is telling us and what Paul shows us is that money should not be an obstacle to the gospel. A salary should not be an obstacle to the gospel. Benefits, retirement, should not be an obstacle to the gospel. He will provide for his laborers, but sometimes he sends them without gold or silver or copper or cash or luggage or clothing or shoes or even a staff, right? But will you go anyway? Will you go anyway? Because the Lord is sending out his workers and he's not necessarily sending them in financial security. So I'm running short on time. I have a whole other page of notes I'd love to share with you, but I can't. So I'm going to skip that. That's verses 11 through 15. There's a lot of great stuff there, but uh, we don't have time for it. If you want to know about it, maybe I'll email you something. Email you my notes. But um, <clears throat> I want to... I wanna, spend the, the last few minutes that we have uh, challenging you to consider these things. To consider what is the Lord calling you to do? Right? And if you haven't noticed, this, this message is clearly for Christians. So if you're not a Christian, maybe the Lord's calling you to get in on what He's doing, to be a, benefic- a beneficiary of His mission to receive his grace and his gospel. So if that's where you're at, maybe that's what you need to do. Well, it is, not maybe. No two ways about it. But, um, but I will say, so I want, I want us to spend time thinking about this, and um, it's interesting the timing of this message because uh, you may not believe me that we did not plan this. We didn't plan this, uh, but later during our membership meeting, we're actually going to talk a bit more about our church's vision um, at, during our membership meeting. Mm, little burps. Um, and we're going to talk about our church's vision to plant churches, to send out people, to send out missionaries, and how the Lord has been calling also a couple people in our church. Who are they? Aaron and Jenna and Gabe and uh, Charlotte, who I don't think is here, uh, to go to Montpelier as missionaries and uh, to Lord willing, if he wills it, plant a church. So uh, that's what we're going to talk a little bit about that in our membership meeting. Sorry if you're excluded if you're not a member, but you can hear about it later. But, um, but I want you to consider what the Lord is calling you to do. What is he calling you to do? So there, there are two roles that every Christian is called to in relation to the king's mission. Every Christian is called to one of these two, either to be a sender or to be sent. So the first is this, you can be a sender. So we're not all going to go. We're not all missionaries. We're not all going to go to the Middle East or to Central Asia, yet our church supports two missionaries that go to those places, that are doing that work, partners in the work of the gospel. So I may never make disciples in those regions, 
But our partners in the gospel will, and I will be a beneficiary, I've used that word a few times in the sermon, of their fruit, and so will you. So ask yourself, am I a sender? And if so, who is going? And how can I partner with them? How much is the Lord asking me to earnestly pray for them? How much is the Lord asking me to give? Are you a sender? And the second possibility is this, you can be sent. There are plenty of different kinds of people who can be sent, right? You don't have to fit a certain mold. You don't have to necessarily be a church planner or a missionary. All kinds of people are needed in the work. And you can be sent. It's all dependent on how the Lord has gifted you, right? But ask him, do you want to send me? Put that on the table for him. Do you want to send me? Do you want to send my family? Am I to be sent? And, and if, as you're praying this, open your eyes to the world around you. Look, where could the Lord be sending me? Is he sending me where I am? I mean, somewhere across Vermont, United States, to another country? Where is he sending me? And who can I partner with? And if, you're, if you see, feel like the Lord is prompting you, hey, this church wants to send. This church wants to send. Uh, send. So talk to us. Talk to your leaders. And we will, see, we will start that process with you. We will dis- help you discern through that if you're qualified, where you should go. Um, and we'll talk through supporting you. So these are the two options that we have before us sender or sent. So I want us all to now go to the Lord in prayer. So let's bow our heads and consider, bring this to the Lord. I want you to speak with the Lord, and I want you to ask him, Lord, what are you commanding me to do? What are you commanding me to do? Are you sending me, or are you sending others through me? And listen to his voice and hear him and what he's calling you to do in obedience. So I want you to consider this, to pray these things, to meditate on these questions, and to listen. Have an open ear to the Lord right now. We'll have a, a, just a minute of silence for you to do this, and then I'll end us in a word of prayer. send laborers. Lord of harvest, send laborers. We see the field. We see the people. Sheep without a shepherd. An opportunity for a harvest to your glory. And we know that you have ordained that it will be by people that you do this work. So, Lord, send them. Send them out. Send out people from our church. Would you put your hand 
on a shoulder and on a heart of someone here, on a few people here, on as many as possible, Lord. Send people out from our church. And Lord, make us obedient to send them, to fully equip them for that work. Open our eyes to help them, to pray for them earnestly, to give to their work. Send laborers, Lord. Send us across this state. Send us across this nation. And send us to the ends of the earth. Send us to where your name is not even named. Where people have not yet heard your gospel. Send us. Here we are. Send us. And do this for your glory. Accomplish your mission through us. Fill our hearts with more passion, God, for the work and for the people who are lost. And let us walk as we do this in the work, in the, in the authority, and the power that you have given to us, God. We love you. And we pray all this in the name of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.